Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi-Williams, and this is the Chelsea's Actually for Sale sports business podcast, The Sportacast. What was Chelsea the last sportacast? Were they kind of for sale? Maybe for sale? We weren't sure, just on the market. Rumored to be. I mean, Rumored as to you be. know, it's been it's been years, Scott. I feel like you know we get tips on Chelsea maybe selling twice a year for the past five years. Well, circumstance, of course, uh, dictates whether Roman Abramovich decided to ultimately let go of this. Do I call it a storied franchise? Is it? Yeah, storied. Right. We're good. Yes. Yeah. All right. But I think I've been. Mean, I think people don't understand this. I don't think they understand the economics of English football, if I will. They're different. That you hear Chelsea and you know they've won Champions League, I believe 2021, and you know, big club. And if you're in the United States and you throw on the TV on Saturday morning, there's a good chance you're going to get you know Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal, Man U, Man City, right? There's a good chance you're going to get one of them against, I don't know who, Wolverhampton, Southampton, you know, whatever. But when you have the big the big six playing against each other, big match, right? All right. But there's, there is the economics of, of this team where Abramovich has spent like crazy to accumulate enough talent to where they can win these trophies, and that's great. Understand, however, that Chelsea loses... <laughs> Anywhere from 150 to 200 million dollars a year. Let me say it again. Chelsea loses 150 to 200 million dollars a year. And you did a great job in one of our initial stories after it was sold, compare and contrast with the Denver Broncos, whereas you have a hard salary cap. So your biggest cost is, is a certainty. You have cost certainty. And you know, of course, the great revenue that the NFL has in its shared national media, and then you can go on to the local, et cetera, et cetera. So whereas the Broncos are spitting, and every other NFL team, by the way, are spitting off cash, cash flow positive, Chelsea, I'll say it again, <laughs> loses between 150 and $200 million a year. That, however, from our understanding and the multiple sources we talk to, has not chilled the interest in all the people around the globe. I'm hearing six out of seven continents are represented in <laughs> folks inquiring as to whether or not they can make a bid for this. Antarctica's richest man has not yet uh, has not it was, yet reached It was out. very funny. I had a conversation with someone from Australia, and they said, "Is it us or Antarctica?" And I said, "Antarctica is is the continent left out." That was, by the way, that was as my last check-in. I don't know. Maybe someone in Antarctica has has since called, but as of my last check-in, I understand six out of seven continents well represented. So let's go back to the economics because because you're absolutely right, and I think the the maybe the best way to kind of frame this conversation is to compare the two really expensive sports franchises that we know are on the market right now: the NFL's Denver Broncos and the EPL's Chelsea. Uh, and and you're right, the the Broncos just to go through the NFL economics real quick. Every NFL team last year got a check that was in the three hundred million dollar range just for national revenue for the NFL. That's mostly TV money, a little bit of sponsorships. Before every team 
Sold and, a and, and by the way, we should say we should say by the way that media money is about to go up. About to go up significantly. Before they sold a single ticket, they had three hundred million dollars in the bank. Add on that their local revenue, merchandise sales, concessions, some of the ticket sales, etc. Uh, the salary cap in the NFL was about two hundred million dollars last year, right? So you can do the easy two hundred less <laughs> than three hundred and the add-ons. Got it. Whoever, whoever buys the Broncos is essentially guaranteeing themselves a hundred plus million dollar profit. Every time they play, barring COVID, whatever it is, the, the Broncos are going to steadily turn a nine-figure profit every year that they're owned. Chelsea, on the other hand, you just mentioned it, is is losing nine figures a year. Chelsea was the best soccer team in Europe last year. They hit the pinnacle of, of what you can be from a continental standpoint. They won the Champions League. Even if they had had no COVID restrictions, uh, Kurt Brett Badenhausen, our, our valuations expert, he put their revenue, would have been around $675 million. They still would have lost $100 million. So that is exactly kind of, to me, is the compare and contrast here. And, and the interesting thing here to me, Scott, is we value these teams fairly similarly. We put the Broncos at $3.8 billion. We put Chelsea at $3.4 billion. Even though one of these things is going to spin off $100 plus million a year and the other one's going to cost you $100 plus million a year. I'm fascinated by the way these two leagues differ and also by how the market, at least in the way that we have been thinking about this, seems to value these things fairly similarly. All right, you ready for a great email that I got? Yeah. And obviously can't say who it was from, but the email said this. Broncos v. Chelsea, which one of these franchises is more likely to be worth $10 billion in the next five to 10 years? Winky, winky, smiley, smiley. (laughs) Winky, smiley, smiley. (laughs) So make the argument for me, which of the franchises is more likely to be worth $10 billion? And as we see the NFL looking to capitalize on dollars outside of the United States, This is where I point to soccer as a true global game and the ability to generate significant revenue all around the world. Yes, and and, but that's only one part of this question, right? I can tell you that I think personally, I think Chelsea is more likely to be worth $10 billion. But the amount you need to pay to hold on to Chelsea until it is worth $10 billion is an insanely large amount of money, right? Um, And and, and I think that's exactly right. There are so many... Uh, there's so much that that soccer has going from it from a global standpoint. We wrote this down in our story, Scott. I thought it was fascinating. Chelsea, their their inner their their social media following between Instagram, Twitter, and and Facebook, 104 million people. What do you think the Broncos is? Mm, six, eight. Yeah, very right. good. Good so, guess by me. Yeah, they have, they yeah. have 12 to 13 times more global social media following than, than the Broncos do. There, there is a lot that Chelsea has going for it. I would argue, and 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 this is I think something that's going to be interesting when we see who is actually seriously at the table at the end of discussions and who ends up buying Chelsea. But so much of these valuations have been propped up by Russian oligarchs that have bought into teams, by Chinese billionaires. Sovereign wealth funds. That money has essentially dried up from China. Sovereign wealth funds, which it seems as though European leagues are starting to maybe get a little bit more wary of. If there is indeed, and this is what people in in England have told me, if there is kind of a cooling towards some of the money that has come into uh, European soccer in the in the past decade, if all of those are no longer options, I, I feel very confident that a Russian oligarch is not going to be buying Chelsea. Uh, <laughs> if those things have all dried up, maybe this thing is actually worth significantly less than, than, than the sticker price just because it's been propped up by all these people that are probably not going to be able to buy into to, to European soccer anytime Evan, soon. Evan, what's the most basic principle besides supply and demand? 
uh, that we can have in economics that we can apply here. And we say it all the time. More bidders. More money. Equals more money. And there will be no shortage of U.S. team owners. We've already heard Josh Harris. We've heard Todd Boley. We've heard Woody Johnson, of course, former ambassador to Great Britain. So he knows all about uh, the English Premier League, I would assume. We have heard uh, Redbird Capital and Jerry Cardinal, of course, investors in Fenway Sports Group, of course, parent company of Liverpool, EPL. Jerry owns uh, what, Marseille in, in, the, in Ligue 1 in France. So uh, again, you're, you're looking at sports as platform company for entertainment, for news, for media, for, for the whole shebang. But and I, and I like the fact that we have Redbird interested because we're bringing in the Boston Red Sox, of course, Fenway, the parent of, of the Red Sox as well, because one of the components in this is real estate. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we see bidders all the time looking at U.S. pro sports teams. And what these prospective bidders will say is, if, if this is a, a, a done deal, there's all everything is ready made, a turnkey operation, many are not interested, believe it or not. They want a media opportunity. They want a real estate opportunity to sink their teeth into, whether it's a new stadium, an RSN, or I don't know about any more in the RSNs, but a media opportunity, right? Well, you've got that with Chelsea, good and bad. Yeah, I was going to say, let's dive into it because it's I, I can make an argument either way. I think. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good piece. and bad. You know, good, uh, you, the fact is, you have an opportunity. They need a new stadium. You hear they need a new stadium. I mean, Stamford Bridge is like I love when we did our side by side comparison of like year built. It's in the eighteen hundreds. All right, eighteen seventy seven. Yeah. yeah this, so when you, if you thought Wrigley Field was old, or if you thought the comparison with Fenway Sports Group here, Fenway Park, a very old bar, ballpark with limited revenue generating opportunities, right? You're up against the highway there. You only got so many seats. You don't have all the luxuries and amenities that like the new Yankee Stadium would have, which is pretty much built to be a cash register. So now I don't know if I'm positive or negative, but you're going to have to try. And I don't know if they'll ever get a new stadium or do you just renovate Stanford Bridge and try to put these amenities in? It's not so easy to get done. More capital allocation on top of what one must pay to acquire the, to acquire the franchise. Yeah, it's, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've been to Stanford Bridge, Scott, in London. I have it not. is there is no there's nothing there's no room around it. it. This is not like Shea Stadium where you can build City yeah. Field next to it and then take down the old bar park when you're ready to. Uh, there's no real estate anywhere nearby that can have a stadium next to it. You have to build on the land that it's on, and it's not on a lot of land. It's very similar to Fenway, and in, in 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 the same way, it's constrained by those things. The the, the people we've talked to have estimated that it's a $2 billion stadium project. If you really want to do it fully and do it the right way, that's a lot of money, right? And that's a lot of money kind of tacking on top of the dollar figures that we're talking about already just to, just to buy the team. Um, I, it does seem like this is in, in the same way that Fenway Park is both a, a blessing and a curse to the Red Sox. It certainly feels like Stanford Bridge, you can argue, it, it's, it's 40,000 people. Right, is by far the smallest stadium for any of the big six in Europe. It, it is both smaller, more out of date, harder to renovate. It has all those characteristics. So as much as the of the, of the classic hominess is, is valuable and they can play that up, um, it does certainly hurt in the revenue generating department. All right. But I do have a certain attachment, a fondness for Chelsea in that one of their all-time greats, Didier Drogba, you know, he was one of my favorite players striker for Chelsea. He once, you know, when the little kids walk out with, with, with players like before 
Well, when Drogba, no, it wasn't with Chelsea, but when Drogba, at, toward the end of his career, was playing with Montreal in MLS, he walked my son out. So it was great, by the way, to tell you how my focus group of one listens to me. Had it all set up, like I found out that Drogba was going to be last out of the locker room that day. So I told my son, all right, when everybody gets ready to go and leaves this little room and you're going to go line up, I said, you wait, be the last kid out. Just wait and be last in line. Okay, dad. I mean, I mean, not 10 seconds after, okay, dad, the guy who was running the whole thing said, okay, let's go. And my son bolts, he's at the front of the line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did something I probably should not have done because I was sort of behind the roped off area where you're supposed to just watch your kid. And this was more for me than him because he really didn't know who Didier Drogba was. I showed him some videos, but whatever. So I duck under the velvet rope. I scoot to the front of the line. I grab him by the shirt and I literally drag him to the back of the line. Um, I do have some of these pictures, so uh, maybe we'll, we'll put them out on the, uh, on the Sportacast Twitter feed. I can't I, tell if that's hidden. great parenting or horrible parenting. Oh, I think I don't it's care. good parenting. I, in, I think it's in, good in an parenting, age of yeah. social media is validation, and you know I don't do too much of it. For me, to get a picture of my kid with his mohawk standing with Didier Drogba and walking out, when he was standing next to Drogba in the tunnel and they were getting ready to, to walk out, he looked up, my son looked up at him and it, he might have well have been standing next to Goliath. Like it was one of those faces like, oh, I don't know who this guy is, but dad said he's important. And it, it was just, it was really something. All right. Also something. Tell me about Apollo. I actually have we, one, one more oh, last question on, on oh, Chelsea oh, for go, you. Go, go, go. Um, let's just say if, if you hypothetically told me that, that you were selling your car and you, and you were wanted to know if I wanted to buy it. If you told me that, or you told me, Eben, I, I need to sell my car. Yeah. I've got some potential legal trouble coming up. I just have to get rid of it. I think I would probably end up with two different offers in those two different scenarios. You How would you would if you were alone. But if I had 150 other people standing in my driveway waiting to buy my car... You might get to the same Th place. That's my question. So, so how much does the fact that it is clear that Roman one has to sell this team and wants to do it pretty quickly? How much does that potentially serve to offset? How, how much does that serve to damper the price? Or is the fact that there are a lot of people interested mean that the, there's no discount for just because of the desperation aspect? If the froth that I'm hearing about is real, if the effervescence for this club is real, if the global interest is real. And I really have no reason to suspect that it is not. There's going to be a lot of tire kickers. If at the end of this process, you're left, and it doesn't need to be, as you know, it doesn't need to be 10. If you're left with three deep-pocketed folks who, what? I reminded myself that we were going to record the podcast, but I don't know where my phone is now. Hold on. It's beeping. My Lord. There you go. Guess what? We started early. Um, and, and depending on how this goes, you know, blind bids, whatever it may be, I don't believe this is going to wind up being a discounted asset. Mm. I, I, I just don't believe there's so much interest, uh, and you're going to have people maybe getting together and pooling of, of resources. You know how that goes when bid groups join forces. We've seen that a, a bunch of times that the brand the the global scalability and the popularity of soccer i i think is going to be too much for some that they'll they'll give some real offers that uh, abramovich will be happy with interesting yeah all right so am i in transition now in transition 
All right. So uh, we, we have a great story. Uh, Apollo, Apollo Global, we hear so much about private equity in sports. And my God, I get in trouble. See, I do this every time because I name some of them. And then invariably, I get an email or a text message from somebody that I've left off. So I'm not doing it this time. I'm not getting myself in trouble. And I hope the people who've emailed me in the past are laughing right now because I'm just, but there, there are a bunch of firms out there who invest across sports. Great. Done. Now, Apollo, we understand, you know, about 450 million in uh, assets under management, billion, sorry, billion. Uh, 450 billion assets under management. We know sources have told us have taken a good hard look at in some way, shape or form, developing a sports investment fund. Uh, not surprised that the likes of Apollo are getting involved. Are you? I'm not surprised either. We talk about it. It seems like every week on the show because it is essentially the one of the biggest stories in our industry in the past 18 months is is the, is the the opening of a lot of franchise ownership and beyond to institutional uh, investors and and PE funds. I think the interesting the the, the, the coda to this story, Scott, is going to be whether they do it or not. Because I also think that that is going to be extremely revealing. There there are people. Um, you don't want to name them. I'll name a couple of them, like Arctos Partners, for example, right? Who have dove extremely quickly into this world. They have investments into at least a dozen, probably more major league franchises right now. They're expanding into other things like Elevate beyond the franchises. There are people who have looked at this world and say, I want in and I want in big. And then there are other people who have either have trouble raising money, have looked at it and decided, Maybe this isn't for me for various reasons. I think wherever Apollo, because of how, how big they are, how, how well-respected they are, you mentioned the, the the assets under management there. I think whatever they decide to do here is actually going to be kind of interesting to maybe think about where the industry is headed. I'm going to give out your email because all the uh, unhappy parties, <laughs> enoviwilliams at sportico.com, not to me. Although this part I found very interesting in Brendan Coffey's story, and I'm going to read it verbatim because I want to discuss it went over and I, and I found it fascinating. So here it goes. For Apollo, discussions of a sports-focused fund might represent some shift in the firm's attitude to the sector. In an agreement with Josh Harris disclosed in an SEC commission filing last year, Apollo indicated Harris's family office, by the way, you know, Josh Harris split from Apollo, didn't need pre-approval for, quote, any investment in a sports team, franchise, league, organization, or substantially related business because these investments are not considered appropriate investments for the company's clients. I find that fascinating. Of course, Josh Harris is you know, co-owner of the Sixers, of the Devils, the Prudential Center, Crystal Palace, so deep, deep into sports. Not appropriate investments for the company's clients. Why, pray tell, Novi Williams is that in that filing? Appropriate is such a loaded word in, the, in, in that sentence. I, I don't know. I'm curious if you do. I don't know the exact answer to this. I can see a world in which uh, not appropriate just means it's not a conflict of interest with other things that we're doing. It doesn't kind of threaten other parts of the Apollo portfolio. I would imagine that there are major league team owners that are invested in Apollo. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I would be shocked if there wasn't already Apollo clients that had equity positions in in sports teams at some at some point maybe that is some kind of assessment from Apollo way back when that these are too volatile they're too x they're too y they're too public uh, for various reasons it may be that they're not appropriate in that Apollo can invest in these things 
or back then they weren't allowed to, right? If you were to go back two years, Apollo would not be allowed to buy a stake of an NBA team, would not have been allowed to buy a stake of an NHL team or a Major League Baseball team. You better not have a state of a sports book and be so, part of a book. Yeah. <laughs> so so maybe it was not appropriate in that like they're not allowed to buy in, buy into these things. So Josh can kind of do whatever he wants with his own money. I don't know, but you're right. It's, it's totally fascinating. You mentioned uh, one of those firms and the fact that they take passive stakes in teams. I'd be surprised if this didn't go far beyond that. Sort of in the, we say sports, yes, and sports and entertainment, but I see this sort of like an ecosystem play, whether it's stadium finance, whether it's debt finance, that's where I could see uh, a, a giant like Apollo thinking that they could to make some great returns. But I don't know, it's, it's, it's a big ecosystem. I don't, think, I don't want people thinking it's just limited to sort of buying 3% of a team that you have no say on and there's no board uh, me- uh, representation and you're just sitting there waiting for appreciation. That really doesn't sort of match up with the private equity model of give me a good return over six to eight years. That just doesn't seem so. But anyway, Evan, by the way, uh, we mentioned sports betting. Something happened in the NFL that I was not aware of that you called to my attention right before the show. This is exactly what the leagues do not want, but uh, tell me about the NFL and its sports betting troubles. Some breaking news as we're recording this. Uh, the NFL announced, uh, just as we started, in a suspended uh, Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Calvin Ridley for at, at least the entire 2022 season after he was caught betting on NFL games, which is right. obviously a, a big violation of of what players are are allowed to do. This is definitely, I would say, in in in, in the past few years, the highest profile athlete that we have had get caught betting on games within his or her own sport. Um, And again, this is something that's going to come up more and more. I think you and I both agree. The league said that there was no evidence that he was using any inside information. He was not with the team at the time. He was not playing. He was on, I think the COVID related list, but he was, he was out. So he wasn't playing in any of the games that he, that he had bet on. We know that. Uh, but no matter what, this is you know, as for for leagues that like the NFL that have talked about the integrity of their sport relative to gambling for so long. This is exactly the kind of headline you want to avoid if you're a union or if you're a, a, a league itself. I, I know he plays football, but he just blew any chance he might have hoped of being in the Baseball Hall of Fame. That was it. <laughs> he's done. He got he's got no shot. Listen, you have Pete Rose, of course. I, I jest. You have Pete Rose. You had Tim Donahue, sort of, you know, the, the word the NBA liked to use was rogue official, who, uh, who also was involved in, in sports betting on NBA games. Uh, this is what they fear. Like, of all the things that could have a, a huge detrimental effect on sports leagues, if, if any significant part of the public comes to believe that the outcome of the games are not on the up and up for whatever reason, not only do you just turn your attention away because you think it's not real competition, but all the ancillary stuff in, in the sports betting world, uh, that goes away too. Like, you know, I don't know if folks will ever get to that point. You know, I am a believer in I'm not sure how many of these or how deep it would have to go for fans to absolutely shut off their football because it's, it's, it's an addiction. Um, but, you know, step one, this is why the leagues were hesitant uh, and the fact that there wasn't enough money yet, but it's worth the risk now. But this is exactly what the commissioners and owners were scared of, this exact scenario. That's right. And, and, and we'll learn more, I'm sure, about, about Calvin's situation and, and, and what happened, how he got caught, et cetera. Part of this could very well just be an education problem. Do you remember the last NFL player that got caught gambling on games? I don't. How, how he got caught? 
No, who was it? He had filled out on his on his form. I think it was at Caesars under occupation. He wrote NFL player. Oh no no no! Really? And, they, and, and the people who were scanning through it were like, "Oh, we should probably inform somebody about this." <laughs> oh, I'm not sure if he's allowed God. to do that. Which goes to highlight that that he at least was very much not like he didn't feel like he was doing anything obviously wrong, but he just wanted to do it. He just felt like it was something that he was allowed to do if he wasn't betting on his own team, whatever, which is very much not allowed. Um, and, and he was suspended for it as well. I'm not sure if he ever played in the league again, but it just goes to show that there's there's a lot of folds here. And at least right now, this doesn't seem like it's the bad one. And the bad one is going to come at some point in some league in America at some point, probably relatively soon, where it's match fixing. Right. And, and, and you know, the NFL seems unlikely for that to happen for a number of reasons, but at some point we're going to get a, a professional player here who gets caught gambling on games that he or she is playing in and, and maybe trying to influence the, the outcome of those games. And that's a much bigger problem than this is. But I think the NFL is right, obviously, in taking a hard line here. And two, the more attention that gets drawn to this now, you weed out the people for whom this is just an education problem who aren't aware what they're allowed and what they're not allowed to do regarding betting. All right, let's close out with the MLB lockout day, something I have no idea. Um, <laughs> as I have discussed with our, the folks on our staff, and I have covered so many of these labor issues in multiple sports, most closely the NBA. To me, they all have a rhythm. I don't get worked up. I, I, I really don't. I mean, I, I see people, obviously the baseball fans and purists, but even in, in the media, you know, howling, how could they gain the, 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 the keepers of the game and and I just said, I roll my eyes, go, really, guys? Enough of this. It's just a business. It's a business. When they're ready to make a deal, they'll make a deal. And then you hear the screaming, oh, my God, we're losing spring training games. So what? <laughs> if you're an owner and you can move a decimal point, itsy-bitsy amount over a 10-year labor contract, you're really happy with that. As David Stern taught me, the key in labor negotiations, and many of the lawyers, by the way, on both sides who sat, on those, uh, sat in on those discussions, the key in labor negotiations, you don't go for everything at once. You get something in a deal, and then you slowly tighten and you slowly add to. That's how you get an advantageous position. So it seems to me, Eben, right now, we're all hung up on the luxury tax, right? What's the threshold? Uh, because obviously, if a tax is on a lower threshold, teams will hesitate to spend. If it's higher, there's more money around to go to the players. I got it. They'll find they'll find a happy medium somewhere. You know, I don't know what the number is, um, but this is also interestingly when you get to luxury tax stuff. This is also not just owner versus player; it's owner versus owner. You know, they're looking at a new owner or who comes in and spends willy nilly. Because he thinks or she thinks that they can win and you know it doesn't matter, we'll pay, we'll blow through the cap and we'll pay the tax because we're gonna win. Eventually, I think oftentimes they learn and then they come back down. But you know, so there's an owner versus owner principle here, but you get it, the players uh, don't want a a lower tax threshold because it will just uh, freeze or cool the amount that many teams will spend on salaries. The the thing that I am kind of trying to wrestle with, and I think you and I maybe disagree on which kind of side of the line we fall on this is that baseball 
really does feel like it is in some kind of like an existential crisis in terms of its popularity in America. It has an aging demographic that is much documented. Attendance has slowly kind of slipped for the past decade, essentially. Um, I wonder if unlike lockouts in, say, NFL or NBA that we've seen in the past 15 years, big labor disputes like that, that, that ended up with, with, a, with a shifted schedule, if those were not as big a deal as this baseball one, just because baseball feels like it is in a precarious situation of just losing relevance in a way that I would not fear if the NFL missed half a season or if the NBA missed half a season. It just feels to me like the the owners and players simultaneously are just playing a more dangerous game just because the stakes seem like they're higher for baseball right now than they have been for other sports in recent years during their CBA talks. My, my counter would be that that existential crisis and the problems existed anyway. Like the, the numbers were going down or you know, you're, you're aging up in your audience, whatever it may be. So how far are you willing to go to get it right? And some of those problems, by the way, aren't even part of the economic equation. It's yep. the game itself, right? Mm-hmm. So baseball, as part of this, it seems as if the, the players are, are more than willing to talk about, okay, no shifts or limited shifts or all that stuff, which I think is crazy, by the way. I know this is, we, we don't generally far, go too far <laughs> to the opinion of this. I'm a, I don't care if they want to have everybody standing on first base. Hit the ball the other way. Figure it out. Like that's To me, that's the beauty of the game, but apparently I'm wrong. Um, I don't know. Whatever Bob Costas says, I'll say, okay. Um, so I, I'm just not sure uh, that there, there's a whole lot at risk right now if it's one month, two month, three month. They need to get the game right while they're trying to insert sort of these economic policies. And they got to then figure out, you're absolutely right. You got to figure out how to get my focus group of one. And I have already said it a million times. You know it. My kid knows every player in Major League Baseball. He knows their batting stance. He knows their team. He knows their position. He and his buddies play the game. Think of a player I'll get 10 questions and I'll see if I can narrow it down and guess who it is. And they know everybody on every team because they play the video game. They play MLB the show. It is wildly popular. Now I got to figure out in this tech-laden world, how do I make those kids, uh, if not tune in all the time, tune in some of the time, come to the ballpark some of the time and spend some money. Does has the lockout affected? I assume the answer is no. But he doesn't even know. He, nah, he has no idea. And so they're playing the game sees, as much. Yeah. Whatever he says on TikTok or whatever, no, he doesn't care. I, I, as far as I can tell, him what he said, he is not complaining about this lockout. Oh, the owners, the players, what are they going to do? He doesn't say. Oh, they're making so much money, they should play. You hear all that stuff. That has not been him. Frankly, uh, he's just gone on, and whatever else captures his attention at the moment is, is fine. But when it does return. I assume those conversations between him and his pals and the games and all that will return as well. Just so, so we're, we're going over here, but I got one last question for you because it's a conversation that that our colleague Emily Karen and I had when we host these Twitter spaces every Friday. It seems to me as though the stars in Major League Baseball have been kind of conspicuously absent in this whole thing. That if this was the NBA, I I, I feel so confident that that the biggest names, your LeBron Jameses, um, your Steph Currys, would be out there publicly advocating, pushing, using their huge platforms. Do I feel that way because baseball players are actually not being as active, or is just the inherent structure? We've talked about how 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 popular NBA players are that the baseball player platform just isn't big enough to kind of penetrate 
even someone like me, who's a power consumer of what's happening in sports, why do you think it is, or, or, or am I just wrong that it feels as though the, the, the athletes themselves have not been a, as big a part of this conversation as it feels like it would. I mean, Tom Brady sued the league, right? It, when he was part of the group that sued the, or was it Peyton Manning? Some of the biggest stars when there's lockouts seem to be really loud, giving the player perspective. It doesn't seem like it's happening as much in baseball. I wish that I could say you were wrong. You know I covet nothing more. <laughs> I wish I could say you were wrong. In fairness, the highest paid player in the game, Max Scherzer, is, has been very vocal. And he mm-hmm. has been active. And he has been uh, showing up at meetings. And what does he get attention for? His car. Driving a Porsche. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the attention. Forget the message. He just showed up at a Porsche and all of a sudden was like, oh, look at this guy complaining. Like, Yeah. Uh, but you're right. The, I, I do believe it has something to do with sort of that global superstardom and one megastar on every team. Like, you know, the NBA is a star-driven league. I'm not so sure MLB is quite the same just simply by the number of players on the team. Like, LeBron carries outside importance just like Michael Jordan did. And when Michael Jordan showed up during the 1998-99 lockout sessions, the owner's tenor changed. When Michael was sitting at the table on the player's side, I can tell you with 100% certainty because I was there and I heard it and I saw people coming out of that room, things were different. And it was it was the David Falk contingent, right? Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning. So a lot of the stars would come and participate and it would be different. And very few stars could also shout down owners and respected owners at that. Ask anybody who was around back then or who was in the meeting to tell you about the time Michael Jordan shouted down, of all people, his future employer, Abe Poland. Hmm. Now, you know, Abe Poland is a grandfatherly, widely respected owner in the NBA. And you know what Michael told him when Abe was trying to make the point that the current economic system wasn't good enough for NBA owners? Michael Jordan, only Michael Jordan had the gravitas to do this. Michael Jordan looked at Abe Poland and said, if you can't make money, sell your team. And I'm telling you, Abe Poland went nuts. Imagine the scene where the way it was described to me that David Stern had to actually physically (laughs) prevent Abe Poland from approaching Michael Jordan. I don't know what he would have said or done, but he was that livid that the player, and it wasn't just any player, this was, you think your backup two guard would say that to Abe Poland? I don't think so. Michael Jordan was in that meeting and he screamed at Abe Poland, if you can't make money, sell your team. By the way, how fun is it that Michael Jordan would then became an owner exactly, and now yeah. he's exposing all the ownership <laughs> issues on the other I was side. Yeah, say it. Yep. Exactly. So, you know, I, I mean, he, he's wearing the hat, uh, you know, depending on where, which side of the table he's on. But, you know, it, yes, there weren't many players who could have done that. Having that sort of star wattage certainly does matter. All right. What do you want to close with? I think that's good. All right. You know, but sometimes I like to give you the closing, but you screwed up. So I'll do it. He is <laughs> Evan Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network.